0: Amen. Amen. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And for those that are new here or visiting, i uh, have just been working through this series through, through 2 Corinthians. And um, just to bring us up to speed or to remind us of where we've been and what's going on uh, in, in this letter that Paul has written. Uh, The conversation has really been in response to an attack against Paul. He had planted this church in Corinth, as we know, and it was just a bit of a strained relationship. And now that he wasn't there, different leaders had come into the church, and there was different tensions, and there was questions about Paul and about his ministry. And so he's been responding to that. And giving a little bit of a defense about who he was. But really, he goes on the offense by painting a picture for us of what New Testament ministry looks like. What is the ministry of Jesus Christ? What is this gospel message that we have been given? And how does the church go about doing ministry? And so as Paul's motives have been questioned, as his character has been questioned... Um, he comes out and he just talks about motives for ministry and why we do what we do and what motivates us and what is the ministry. And so if you've been here over the last number of weeks, or if you haven't and you're just getting caught up to speed, what we've been talking a lot about is this, is that we're all ministers. Every single one of us that, that we make a, a deadly mistake when we associate ministry just to clergy or to people that are paid. But that we are all ministers when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Representatives. Ambassadors. Given a, a message. And so last chapter where we were two weeks ago went on a different track last week. But when we were at the end of 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 4, Paul closed with contrasting this light affliction of this life with the eternal weight of glory that is going to come upon us when we are with Christ in heaven. And he contrasted unseen things, eternal things with the temporary seen things. And so now Paul's going to talk about some things that motivate us in ministry. And he's going to stay on this theme of eternity. And I would say this, the just a few points I'll I'll, I'll point out as we're going through. The first point of motivation for us is that we have knowledge of eternity. Check out verse 1 as Paul's going to contrast earthly things and eternal things. Verse 1 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. See, this body, Paul says, is a tent. It's, it's an earthly home. And he's, what's interesting is that he says this, he starts and he says, we know this. Church, we know this, but sometimes we just need the reminder. But God's word tells us over and over again that this earth is not our home. That this body is but a tent. <laughs> Any tenting fans out there? I know there's a few of you but I, I know that there's a few of you who have never come to a CTK camp out. <laughs> you know, I, I would say this, don't let disdain for tenting stop you from joining us next year because this year, Ross and Bernice rolled in and they have room for all of you, okay? So I'm just extending that on behalf of Ross. Um, he'll make room for you, okay? If you're not a tenter. But, uh, you know, I, I love tenting. There's something about tenting that's great. But, look, I'm not a winter camper. I don't want to be out there staying in a tent today. You know, a week or two weeks in the summer in a tent is great, but not permanently. Not permanently. Because tents are never designed to be permanent homes. And your body's a tent. It was never designed to be a permanent home. You know, as wonderful as your body is, One day, you'll fold it up like that old tent, put it in the bag, and it'll be tossed in the garbage can, so to speak. Literally, the idea that Paul is talking about here is that the tent will be folded up. It will be folded up, and it will be put away. God will strike it down. Because we have a building from God. You're going to need a new body. Remember that in eternity, we we saw this... uh, Two weeks ago at the end of 2nd Corinthians chapter 4. That you are going to bear the eternal weight of glory. That glory is going to put pressure on you. That it's going to demand of you physically and spiritually. And you're going to need a building that can handle it. When Paul talks about a building here. He's talking about your eternal body. You're going to need a body that can handle it. You know I just think about when, when Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place for us. In John chapter 14. In heaven, you know, we we think of maybe some great glorious mansion in heaven and there's that old hymn, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And you know, that that could be the case, but you know, I wonder if Christ is, when he spoke about what he was building for us, was the body that we are going to have when we enter into heaven. Well, verse 2 says this, For in this tent we groan." Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In this tent, Paul says, we long uh, for something more superior, an eternal body. One that's not inhibited by the limitations of this earth. And you know, the, the fact that this body is a tent, it's demonstrated, Paul says, by a couple things. We groan and we sense the burden of this life. You know, we see the, we see the limitations and shortcomings of this body of ours. Yesterday, Gail uh, at the men's conference was just clear to say, flesh rots. And he talked about it and he told us, nasty things about the flesh because flesh rots, flesh rots from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Your flesh is destined to the ground. You know, I was this week. uh, I was yapping with Will actually. And Will said to me, uh, Hey, you want to go play hockey? Maybe on Wednesday, we haven't had a chance to hang out over Christmas. Let's go hang out. So uh, we met up at the rink at noon, went on the ice and, I was playing hockey and just just dropping and having a good time. And I was playing defense and the puck popped loose. And I was going to be in a skating battle versus this other person to grab that puck. They had a chance for the breakaway and I had the chance to take the puck away. And I thought to myself, you're dead meat. You're going to just, I'm going to take this opportunity away from you and you'll be so sorry. And uh, you don't realize how fast I am. And uh, the problem was, is that I was going against like Harrison Hoekstra. Who's like, you got, some of you guys know him. He's about 17 and I'm 37. And, and he had half a stride on me. And before I knew it, he had like five strides on me. And I thought, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> it was a reality check. It made me groan for my <laughs> eternal home. <laughs> you ever get those groanings for your eternal home? You know, how is your desire for heaven? Christian, you know, many of us are not earnestly desiring heaven. Perhaps it's because we're, we're just so comfortable on this earth. It, you know, it's, I'm not saying we should seek affliction or anything that, but neither should we dedicate our lives to the pursuit of comfort. See, there is nothing wrong with earnestly desiring heaven. We saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a good godly thing to desire heaven and eternity. I think for a lot of years, the church has been beat up for thinking that it's wrong to be eternally focused. It is right. There is something right about being able to agree with Paul and saying, yes, in this body, I groan And I am longing for my eternal home. I sense the burden of life and relationships and stress and this and that. And God is helping me in the midst of that. And I'm getting through and I'm having victory and I'm growing. But Man, I'm looking forward to eternity. See, he who has prepared this very thing for us is God. And God has given you a deposit of that, which is to come. He is preparing you. You have been made for the purpose of eternity. Eternity is set in your hearts. God designed you with that eternal longing to know him and to be known and to live forever. It's why we see such a a craze in our culture about aging and not wanting to age and not wanting to get old. It's eternity is in your heart. But the scripture says this. God has given you. The Holy spirit as a deposit as a deposit. See the promise of heaven is backed up with a down payment. Does God's spirit live in you? You're the temple of God. How does the knowledge of eternity, you know, touch your heart because God has put in a deposit. He's giving you a taste of heaven by the presence of the Holy spirit in your heart and in your life. And so Paul says this in verse six. So we are always of good courage. I mean, he's been saying that throughout this book. We're confident. We're of good courage. We're pressed. We have these things going on, but man, we have hope. We're of of good courage. We have a confidence in the Lord. Verse six continues again. It says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. The next the next motivator for us, we have knowledge of the, of the eternal, but the next thing that motivates us as we live for Christ is this. We walk by faith and not by sight. The life of faith to walk by faith means this. It means we make faith Part of our daily life everywhere. You know, I'm sure you've had times in your life where you've wanted to step out and do something great for God. He's given you some sort of opportunity or this, and you, you spend time with him. You get a conviction of truth and belief about the word of God. And then you step out in faith to do something and you watch for God to work. And you know, that is awesome. Awesome. That is godly. We want to take steps and actions of faith, but the new Testament conviction of truth and belief regarding our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. When Paul says we need to walk by faith, he's not just talking about the big stuff because he's talking more about the everyday areas of life. We walk by faith. We bring faith into everything. Faith touches the daily duties of life. Faith touches our parenting. Faith touches our marriage. Faith touches our work. Faith touches our friendships. Faith touches our neighbor. Faith everywhere. That's what he's saying here. We walk by faith. It's not just when we're trying to do something great by God. It's Monday to Saturday. It's Monday through Sunday. It's 24-7 We walk by faith, not by sight. He says in verse eight, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so there's some points about faith here that I want to just point out to you over these next few verses. The first thing Paul points us to is the desire of faith. What is the desire of faith? It's this to be away from this body and to be at home with the Lord. Remember Abraham? He set his sights on a city whose foundation and builder was God. And this desire is birthed in us because we know Bible truth. We know what God's word says and the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is a deposit. We long to be away from this body and at home with the Lord. And that's good. We should. You know, I guess the question sometimes people ask is this, what happens When we die, or what happens to believers when we die? Well, the text answers this plainly, doesn't it? When we're away from this body, we are present with the Lord. We're present with God. To be away from this body is to be at home with the Lord. You know what? Whatever you envision heaven to be, whatever you envision eternity to be, know this, that primarily, it's about being with God. It's about being with the Lord. The Lord is what makes heaven great. Oh yeah, streets of gold and this and that. But it's the Lord and his presence that makes heaven great. And to be away from this body is to be at home with the Lord, unhindered, unrestricted in his presence, beholding his glory. I can't remember who it was I spoke to this week, but somebody somewhere throughout my week, I was talking to someone and they were, they'd been away on holidays and they were talking about coming home from holidays and that how holidays are so great. They totally enjoyed their holiday. They looked forward to going away on holidays, but that there was something about coming home, even in January. Going home at the end of a work day or going home at the, the end of a camping trip or going home. After a holiday, there's something about home where you just, your guard comes down, you relax. It's your place. It's, it's where you are at home. Well, Christian, heaven is your home. You're going to have a homecoming. And faith desires to be with the Lord. Verse 9 says, So whether we are away, Sorry, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So if the desire of faith is for heaven, the aim of faith is this. To please God. Whether we're at home or whether we're away. I want to please God. do you want to please God with your life? You know, especially since as Paul talks about eternity and as we're about to see here, that everything has eternal consequences. Absolutely everything. He says this, we, we aim to please God. That's our ambition. You report to headquarters. <laughs> you know, Alexander McLaren said this you report to headquarters, never mind what anyone else thinks of you. Your business is to please Christ. And the less you trouble yourselves about pleasing men, the more you will succeed in pleasing Christ. See, heaven is our home. But it's the Lord who decides when we get there. And so right now in in absence from his presence. We want to please our heavenly father. We want to please our dad. You know my absence. I would say this. The absence from um, eternity. And the absence from God's presence in eternity. Or being on this side of eternity means this, we want to please God because there's things that right now, you won't have the chance. There's things in life that are right now is your only chance to ever get to please God in these certain areas. You know that when you're in heaven, you won't need faith. You won't need faith because you're going to be there present with the Lord all the time. It'll just be natural, but there's certain areas of life that, right now is my only time to work and to please God in those areas. You know, I think about pleasing him in my marriage or pleasing him in my work or pleasing him in my heart to tell others about Jesus or pleasing him in my parenting. You know, those are all things that I only get to do on this side of eternity. When I get to heaven, those things will cease. The need to walk by faith won't be necessary. Because we'll be with the the Lord. And so Paul says this. The ambition of faith now is directed. It needs to be directed to our father's pleasure. You know, as I was preparing my heart just for this this morning, I just thought, God, I pray you just have pleasure today. Would you just have pleasure in your church? Would, Would the aim of everything that happens at CTK just bring you pleasure today? It's not that we need to earn God's love. We don't need to earn his love. He loves us. He is our father. But it's this. We get to say, hey, dad, look at me. I'm doing this for you. You know, it makes me think of one of my kids when they're doing sports or singing in a concert at school or doing whatever they do. You know, after they perform, where do their eyes look? They search the crowd and they find mom or dad. For that pleasing look. That's us right now church. We live this life. We walk by faith. And then we just look. What did you think dad? Was that awesome? That's what we're called to do. And our heavenly father will reward our faith. Look at verse 10. He loves us. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. See, there is a reward for faith. God will judge what we do in this body. That's what what Paul is saying here. But what you need to know is this is when he talks about this judgment, he's not talking about what you might be thinking. He's talking about. See, there's different judgments in the future. Of course, there's what we know in the scripture as the great white throne judgment where God will deal with those who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is not what, what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about something that is called the Bema seat. You ever heard that term? The Bema seat is the place where Jesus will judge what we have done in our body. It's, um, So so what you need to know about the Bema Seed is this. Is that it has nothing to do with inheriting eternal life. It has nothing to do that. Eternal life is taken care of by the cross. And by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And so. Heaven. Eternity. Done deal. But the Bema Seed is about where. Jesus takes the time. To go through our life. And to give the rewards. It's like a picture of the Greek Olympics, you know, awards being handed out to the athletes who have run their race. See, Jesus will judge what we have done and he will judge the motives behind what we have done. You know, what we have done will be judged. You know, they, they they say you can have a saved soul, but a wasted life. You know, your troubles for the gospel. I'm telling you will be worth it. And so don't waste your life. God will reward you. Jesus will reward you serve the Lord knowing reward serve the Lord knowing that reward will come but know this at the same time the Lord Jesus will also judge your motives because we know that you can do all the right things and yet have all the wrong attitudes in those actions all the wrong attitudes motivating you. You can do good things, but if your heart isn't in the right spot, the Lord knows. And he will judge that accordingly. And so appearing at the Bema seat, appearing at this seat of judgment that Paul is talking about here, you need to know this, that this is a privilege what he's talking about. This is a good thing. This is an exciting thing. This is an assessment of our works and our integrity and our character. And then there are rewards handed out accordingly. But the scripture also says this in Hebrews ten thirty one that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because our God is a consuming fire. So Paul says this in verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope that it is known also to your conscience. And so, The third motivating factor for us as we do ministry for the Lord is this, is that we know what it is to fear the Lord. We know what it is. We know that apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, the destiny of the lost and the destiny of many people will be an eternity apart from the presence of God. And it's because of a relationship with Jesus Christ that we have been delivered from uh, or saved from that terror. And so Paul says this because we know this because we know that we're going to be judged and rewarded for our for our actions and the things that we do for the Lord. We do this. We persuade others. We persuade others. We want to win people's favor for Jesus Christ. We want to induce belief in Jesus by our words and by our actions and by our love for other people. We want to wrestle for men and women's consciences. Now, we don't do that by inducing fear in people. You know, although there's a place to be motivated by fear. (laughs) You know. If fire and brimstone gets a person into the kingdom of heaven, then fine by me. I'm okay with that. They're in the kingdom of heaven. If you need fire and brimstone, then fine. But a far more powerful tool as Paul's about to talk about than fear is love. To love people into the kingdom of God. To passionately desire them to come to Jesus and to persuade them by your love for them. To persuade them by your works and by your words. Look at verse 12. Paul says this. We're not commending ourselves to you again. But giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. And not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves it is for God. If we are in our right mind. It is for you. He says this. You need to understand something about the heart. You need to understand our heart, Paul says. You need to understand my heart so that you can defend against those whose focus is always on outward appearances. You know, there's a a big mistake we can make to focus on outward appearances. And so, you know, I would just ask you, you know, what what do you glory in? Are you among those who glory in the appearance and not the heart? Remember what the Lord said to Samuel that the Lord does not see as a man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know, we're we're so easily impressed by a person's image. You know, we're so easily. In in fact, we're so easily impressed by people's image that sometimes uh, we don't care about looking at the substance of who they are. And it's not that appearance isn't important. It's important, but Compared to the heart, no comparison. And so Paul says, look at the heart and have your heart in the right spot. Corinthians, no. You can make whatever comments you want about my appearance. But I'm telling you about my heart. About my heart. Look at verse 14. Because he says this about ministers. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. See our hearts are compelled to be compelled and controlled by love. See, there it is again. I guess we, we know what it is to fear the Lord. And so we try to uh, persuade others, but what really controls us and what really compels us is to be love. You know, I was surprised actually, as I was just studying this and looking this up, that, that one of the definitions of control And compelling and the constraining that love does that Paul's talking about here. Is he says this, it presses on us. I thought, oh wow, that's crazy. I mean, just thinking back to what we talked about two weeks ago about how burdens press us. And how the eternal weight of glory will put pressure on us. But he says this, our love does that as well. It controls us, it presses on us, it holds in the boundaries of how we live and how we act. Why does love control us? Why is love to control us? Because love is the greatest foundation for ministry and your ministers. Wanting to give ourselves for the ministry because Jesus gave everything for us. He died for us. Therefore, all died. He laid down his life. Therefore, I laid down my life for him and for others. You know, when we receive the love of Christ, when we invite Jesus Christ into our heart and into our lives, his love touches our heart and it makes us want to live in service for other people. Look at what Paul says about the reason that Christ gave his life for you. Verse 15. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died for their sake, for who for their sake died and was raised. See, no longer we live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and who was raised from the dead. As the scripture says, you know, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Jesus laid down his life so that you would lay down your life in service to him. Now the fourth ministry motivator is this. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Check out verse 16. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. You, know, you think about Paul and Paul's life. Uh, we know certain things about his history that he was a Pharisee. And we know that he certainly viewed Christ according to the flesh. He did not see Jesus Christ as the son of God. The Messiah who had come for the sins of the world before his, his salvation. And so, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to put the puzzle together and, and know that Paul was amongst the Pharisees. And probably even heard uh, Jesus teach in Jerusalem. Probably was part of those crowds who came against him and often confronted him. Uh... Paul at one time viewed Jesus according to the flesh from Nazareth. Can anything good questions about his birth? Who is this guy? Unschooled all these different things. Uh, No doubt. Paul looked at him according to the flesh, but now he looked at him and, 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 remembered what he once thought fondly. Wow. I used to look at Christ in the flesh and now I see him as he truly is the son of God who, who came for my sin and to bring me into relationship with my father who is in heaven. And so he says, one of our, our motivators is that we no longer regard Christ from a worldly point of view, and we no longer regard people from a worldly point of view. We're no longer interested in appearances. We're interested in hearts. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. Isn't that a great verse? That is a verse that you should circle and underline and put brackets around and memorize. Because you are in Christ and you are a new creation. The old has passed away. That means this. God buried the old man and you have been raised to life. Given the spirit as a deposit, the new has come and eternity is your home. What a great verse. It says anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Anyone. Anyone, child or old, slave or free, man or woman, whatever country, whatever culture, whatever nation, whatever background, anyone. This is for anyone. And it's a promise for those who are in Christ. Not into religion. No, it's not for those who are into religion. Not for those who are into themselves, but into Christ. Who are in Christ. Who are hidden in Christ. Who invited Christ into their lives. And been partakers of of him. See Jesus changes those who come to him by faith. And maybe you don't know Jesus. He'll tell you something about Jesus. Maybe you desire your life to be changed. And your situation to change. And your circumstances to change. They might not all change. But Jesus will change you as you invite him into your life, as you come to him in faith, you will become a new creation. He will regenerate you. Now that doesn't mean perfection will come on this side of eternity. That doesn't mean that we expect perfection from one another. But it means this, we'll be changed and we are being changed. It's for those who are in Christ. Christ. But this verse also tells us something about, you know, as we talk about not viewing anyone according to this world or according to the flesh, it tells us some of the things that we need to regard about the unbeliever. And that's this, that those who don't know Jesus are in need of reconciliation with God. You know, all too often, I think that the church just makes the mistake that It's unfair that we expect those who are not in Christ to live as though they are. We expect this world to act as if they're new creations when they're not. But for those who are in Christ, those who claim Christ, those who say that they are Christians for them, we should put on expectations of new creation life. Look at verse 18. It says this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us The ministry of reconciliation. See the works of new creation in me and in you are of and they're from God. It's God's work in us. And Christ reconciled us to God. See God did the work of reconciliation where this relationship between man and God is broken. It's God who initiated the reconciliation. And he did this work of reconciling this broken relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. He did not neglect his holy justice. He did not neglect his, his justice and his demand against sin. Rather, he reconciled himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And God initiated the work from beginning to end. See, when we talk about man's relationship with God, it's it's not God who was ever in the wrong. He was innocent. It was mankind's act and my act and your act of rebellion and sin that needed to be reconciled to God. And God did it. He did the work in his son, Jesus. Now, the amazing thing about this is this to me. That he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Your ministers. God did the reconciling. He did it through his son, Jesus Christ. But now he's given the ministry to us. He committed to the church, the message of reconciliation. Check out verse 19. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See the message of the church is this. To the world. God is not counting your sins against you. God is not counting your trespasses against you. He's made a, He's reconciled you. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. See reconciliation to God comes for men and women through a message. The message of reconciliation through the hearing of words. God uses the preached word to reconcile men and women to himself. See, that's why in the ministry of reconciliation, our works need to be accompanied by words. People can't just watch. You need to tell and speak in faith, the gospel message. You see through the work of the cross, God, the father was working through his son, Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Father and son worked together and Jesus did it on the cross on that cross. The father laid on Jesus all the guilt and all the weight of sin and Jesus perfectly bore that weight and he totally satisfied the wrath of God and he paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus was judged for sin. He was judged for my sin. He was judged for your sin. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin and he accomplished that work perfectly and he was raised from the dead. And he reconciled us to the father. And all we need to do is accept that work to invite Christ in to say, Jesus, I believe in what you did for me. I invite you into my heart and into my life. Save me from my sin and save me from myself. And he will, he will. And so verse 20 says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Uh, Again, you know, we've been given this ministry. We've been given this message of reconciliation. But even more than that, we are ambassadors for Christ. I mean, that's, that's a huge concept to consider. I mean, we just scratch it. But, you know... Yeah, there's just so much to the idea of an ambassador. An ambassador does not speak, you know, to please their audience. An ambassador speaks to please the king who sent them. You know, an ambassador does not work or does not speak according to his own authority or according to his own opinions or demands. He simply says what he has been commissioned to say by his king. You know, and, And an ambassador is is even more than a messenger. He's a representative. And and the honor and the reputation of his king who has sent him is put into his hands. See, there's much to this idea of us being ambassadors and ministers and messengers of reconciliation and of Christ. See, church, God is making his appeal to this world through you. He is making his appeal to this world through you. Your lives blast to this world. And I hope your mouths to be reconciled to God. God loves you. God's not willing that any should perish. He laid down his life. He sent his son. He died on the cross for your sin. And if you'll invite him in, that's simple. It's done. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's already done the work. And Paul says this, we implore. You, on behalf of God, be reconciled. You know, this morning, I'm here as an ambassador to Christ. It's a heavy job. A responsibility. You carry that same weight and responsibility every day, everywhere you go as you walk by faith. And our lives are to beg and to plead and to implore people. Be reconciled to God. Look at verse 21. For our sake... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. See, Jesus, perfect, sinless, came to this earth like we've celebrated this Christmas season, but he grew up, he became a man, and he lived the perfect life, the sinless life. He knew no sin, but God made him take on our sin on the cross. Why? As verse 21 at the end of it says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. So that we might be right with God. So that we might display God's righteous acts and righteous works. There's much to motivate us in this ministry We've been given a a ministry and a message and we have been made ambassadors. Don't lose heart. Rather set your heart on eternity and go about the work of Christ in your home, in your family, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, in your friendships, in all your relationships represent Christ. Ask the Lord to help you walk by faith in every area, every area not just the big dangerous moves, but every area. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite Jerry and Brian to come on up here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this great chapter. These great things that we have read this morning. And first of all, Jesus, I want to thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that you were not willing. Your father was not willing that any should perish not willing that any should be lost in their sin and separated from you. God, you love people and your love motivated you and you sent Jesus. And Jesus lived the perfect life. And then in the fullness of your time, you put on him the weight of our sin and he bore it. He died in our place. And he was buried in the ground, that tomb. But you raised them from the dead. You raised them from the dead to show that the price of sin and the penalty of sin was paid for. God, your word tells us that you have already reconciled the entire world to you. You have already reconciled the entire world to you. But we must acknowledge it. Our part is to simply to invite you in, Jesus. And so, Jesus, we believe in who you are. We believe in what you have done. We believe that you paid the penalty for our sin have brought us into relationship with God. You know, this morning, I just need to give that opportunity to you. I ask that just everyone would bow their heads, close their eyes, that you'd respect your neighbors around you, not look around. But I want to give you that opportunity to respond to Christ. Maybe you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life. See, he's already reconciled you. But to be in Christ, you must acknowledge him, invite him into your heart and into your life. That's what the scripture says. And that acknowledgement acknowledges a couple things. It acknowledges that your sin has separated you from God. And then it acknowledges that Jesus is the answer for that situation to bring you into relationship with the father. And so if you've, if you've never invited Christ into your heart and into your life, I want to give you that opportunity to do so this morning. And and I'd just like you to just acknowledge me, maybe look me in the eyes and let me know that you say, yes, I want to invite Christ into my heart and into my life and have my sins forgiven and know that eternity is settled. And so if you'd like to do that this morning, I'd just like to pray with you. I I won't point you out or anything, but if you uh, just let me know, I'll pray with you. Thank you. I just ask that we'd all pray along in our hearts. I'll lead us in a prayer just inviting Christ into your heart and into your life and that person that responded I invite you to just pray with me. Let's all pray along just quietly to yourself. Jesus I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you came from heaven. You gave your life for my sin and This morning, Jesus, I acknowledge that my relationship with God is broken. And I own my part in that. And I ask this morning that you'd forgive me. I ask you to forgive my sin. And I thank you, Jesus, that you have done that. That you paid the price for my sin. And this morning, I put my faith in you. I invite you into my heart. I invite you into my life. I ask you to make me a new creation. God, I pray that you would settle in my heart eternity and that I would know. I thank you, Jesus, for that in your name. Amen. Lord, this morning, I I just pray that as the question of eternity being settled in in our hearts that you just pour your peace now lord lord you said your word says that you give your spirit as a deposit so lord for that life right now i just pray that your holy spirit would come in and that there'd be a taste of heaven right now lord that there would be a taste of eternity that there would be peace lord I pray for peace in the heart. Pray for peace in the mind, Lord. I pray for a sense of rest. And I pray for the strength that comes from your presence, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that heaven rejoices. And Lord, we thank you as as your church, that you've given us this mission as ministers, as ambassadors. God, would you help us to grow in faith? to walk the life of faith, Lord, in everything. We pray, Lord, that our lives would preach Christ and that our words would preach Christ. God, we pray that your love would compel us and constrain us and can control us in every way. We thank you for your word this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.